I am so proud and thrilled and delighted to be part of Wonder Woman's 75th anniversary celebration. Great Hera. I wanted to talk briefly about Wonder Woman's 75th anniversary special. To the best of my recollection, DC's never actually done a standalone special for Wonder Woman anniversary before. Usually it's just folded into the main series and often with very little fanfare. This is actually a pretty nice package. It's got a cardstock cover provided by Jim Lee and it runs for 80 pages at just $7.99. The first story is by Raphael Scavoni and Raphael Albuquerque. It's set during World War II in France and basically associates Wonder Woman with Joan of Arc. Until Wonder Woman started running around with a sword, I didn't see a lot of association between those two. And the story's a bit violent for my taste, but it's all right. Then there's a pinup by Jenny Frizen. I love her art. Fan of her revival covers in particular. But it's a dark reflection of Wonder Woman. It's a downcast image. And it's interesting to me that in what you would think would be more of a celebratory context, so many of the stories and the artistic representations of Wonder Woman are somewhat bleak. But I guess that's where the character is right now, and it's certainly a reflection of 2016 as a whole. The next story is a four-pager by Brendan Fletcher and Carl Kershaw. Gorgeous art by Kershaw. It's mostly silent and involves Wonder Woman stalking a poacher. This is a more classical-style Wonder Woman, and I've enjoyed this tale. Then there's a four-page sequence spotlighting the artwork of Brian Boland on Wonder Woman covers. Boland is one of my favorite artists in general. He's one of my favorite Wonder Woman artists, certainly. Those covers were part of the Wonder Woman run that is the closest to my heart. And I've actually spotlighted several of his unused cover sketches on the blog in the past. But it's nice to see these so-called preliminary sketches in print on the actual comics page. For starters, they're better rendered and more complete than most covers in general. And while they're mostly just different perspectives on covers that were published, the artistry is such that it's worth it to see Bolin realize those angles. I like her shield when it's on the cover of a Brian Boland piece and end of statement. Like <laughs> the, the, that, that one cover where the shield is prominent, it's like, that's pretty much it for me. Do you prefer? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I used to have the statue that was based on that by Tim Bruckner. And I, I ran a comic <laughs> shop and uh, toward the end of the run of the comic shop, somebody convinced me to sell it. And I've already always regretted it. I need to buy another one one of these days. It was gorgeous. Mm. Uh, I, I, I one you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, I, I even had like a trophy case for it to keep it the dust off of it. It was uh, it was a huge mistake on my part to sell that thing. But sometimes you got to keep the lights on. Yeah. Ugh. The longest runs that I have, and again, I'm ready to get chastised, is the Messner Lobes run, the Rucker run, the Simone run, and believe it or not, the Azarello Chang one that recently happened. But smattered throughout there are, you know, a few Perez issues, a few Bronze Age issues. I got rid of the Jody P. Colt issues. So I've always been attracted to the character because I think that she's really got a depth to her that could be explored. But I don't know if everybody is successful in exploring it. Well, as you you know, I'm a huge fan of the William Messner Loeb's run, and I would say Greg Rucka's run is probably the most well-regarded among modern comic book readers. I think that for many people in their lifetime, that's been their favorite run. So I couldn't chastise you for that. I'm curious, though, did you complete any of those runs, or do you just have chunks of it? I've got almost all of the Messner Loeb. I kind of started in, I would think, the early 80s. And believe it or not, the reason why I picked it up was because the Boland covers were so fantastic. Oh, I didn't, yeah. think, didn't think I would be interested, but, you know, you start to read the books and you're like wow these this is actually a pretty good story and i finished that all the way through the rucka i picked up at the beginning but i don't i think i sort of stopped before he finished but i got like at least a year and a half to two years worth of books out of him and and really enjoyed it in fact i don't really quite recall why i dropped off so those are always issues that i'm kind of looking for in dollar boxes to sort of finish to see how that all ended up and then the azarello chang one i actually went all the way through to the end of their run and then dropped it when when the Finches took over. Well, uh, you like you know, most people I've talked to and you kind of wish that run had wrapped up a little earlier? The Azarello Chang? Yes. Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, I, I've told people all along that I went into it, first of all, I was not a big fan of the New 52 and I went into reading that book basically saying I'm going to treat this as though it's an Elseworld and that she is the only hero on this planet because it's so different from what I consider to be the canon origin in my mind, but it is interesting 
interesting in some ways that I thought it was worth reading, but it did probably, there were issues where it just seemed like they were treading water as opposed to progressing the plot that they were trying to get done. I just had a question for you. Did you ever read or like enjoy the Mike Diodato run? Yeah. Because uh, I saw that they just collected that. That's one of the Wonder Woman trade paperbacks that's now on the shelves, the Mike Diodato collection. I'm like, really? The, all of the excesses of the 90s, <laughs> these oh, yeah. are what you're oh, yeah. putting out there right a now? Major, major cheesecake. Lots oh, of yeah. Oh, yeah. overly large panels. I, I guarantee you, Master Loeb would write a script and it would be interpreted by Diodato and then a whole new script would have to be written over whatever Diodato was drawing. Uh, because maybe he was good for four panels on a given page, on a good page. And I do think that he hurt the writing quality of the run. But what was important about Diodato is that he proved that Wonder Woman comics could sail. You had Diodato make Wonder Woman a hot book. It was actually on the back of Christopher Priest making Cersei a, a hot character by having her be a bad girl and just like a two-issue guest story that he did. Wizard Magazine picked up on it and promoted it. And then Diodato comes in and the Diodato back issue started getting hot. And that was enough to attract, I think, John Byrne's attention. So once Diodato was going to leave and go work at Marvel, they decided to scrap the creative team entirely and start all over with John Byrne and heavily promote the book. So I think that a lot of Wonder Woman's ascension as being part of the Trinity, because the Matt Wagner miniseries called Trinity came out sometime around that same time period. Mm -hmm. I think that the concerted effort to make Wonder Woman become a part of that Trinity and and have it be a Trinity rather than a duo, a lot of that came out of Deodato and out of John Byrne. Now that having been said, when I say I'm a fan of the Master Loeb's run, I really mean prior to Deodato. There was good stuff in that run, but it was so much less because of the cheesecake and because you just didn't have the space to tell the stories and the detail that Loeb's had been doing. Plus, his humanist streak, his tendency to focus a lot of attention on side characters and real people, that all fell by the wayside as soon as Deodato came in. But the last year of the Master Loeb's run was all Deodato. And the resolution of the White Magician arc that had started when Paris Cullen was doing the book was also during that run. I think the only issues from that era, that run that I wrote, were the zero-hour tie-in and issue zero. I understood why his art was hot at the time. I really liked Diodato when he was doing the Incredible Hulk during the Bruce Jones run, but I didn't like it on Wonder Woman. I didn't like the story, which from the sounds of it, probably his work kind of neutered the story of what the Loves was trying to do. The core of the story remained. It's just she had to wade through a lot of silliness. But at the same time, the Wonder Woman book, in terms of raw eye appeal, as something that would get people who weren't already reading the book to pick it up and just look at it and give it a chance. There had not been a gateway artist on the book like that since George Perez. They'd tried to promote specifically Lee Motor who I enjoyed. He had a a nice little run on the book as well, but it wasn't grabbing readers. Deodato is what brought new people to the book. Mm. And I agree though that Zero Issue I don't think was the strongest because it did have a new origin for Wonder Woman where they tried to infer that perhaps she was conceived by Hercules and it also ended with her losing the contest to Artemis and it started an extended story arc from there. So as somebody who's coming in trying to enjoy Wonder Woman and seeing her defeated at the end of the issue, it could have been a kind of a drag. Yeah. I will admit as a teenage boy, maybe I liked the Mike Diodato black biker costume more than I should have. <laughs> Actually, Brian Bolin designed that. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, I know. It's surprising, right? Yeah, that's so surprising. <laughs> if you think about it, though, Diodato basically took the Wonder Thong to its ultimate degree. You could not get any slimmer or any further up the rump than Diodato got. So it was actually Bolan providing that modesty by putting her in the bike shorts. That makes sense. It's not a popular costume, but one thing that would have made it a lot less popular is, if I remember correctly, in Bolan's original concepts, he colored it pink. Oh, that would not work in pink. <laughs> not at all. And I think it was a good contrast to Artemis is taking over Wonder Woman and is, in, and is in the iconic costume. And so I think you had to kind of break away. And given the timing of that run, I think that kind of fit in with the extreme look of the 90s. I, I did like the contrasting house as they did with Deodato too. The taking it to the streets ones where you had one with Diana and one with Artemis. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of cheesecake in that run, but I think that everything is really beautiful if you can sort of look past that as much as you can. And it does fit in that time period. The men are all six feet wide. Uh, with with uh, major thyroid conditions, yeah. Exa- exactly right. It's really hard to spot the stars when you're dealing with dental floss, so. <laughs> exactly. Really pop Sorry, like that. Stars are in there somewhere, but. <laughs> and they itch. <laughs> 
Okay. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm a cosplayer. I do a lot of uh, gender bending cosplay, and uh, I have a couple of Wonder Wonder Man costumes that I try, I try to do the same amount of clothing when I adapt the female costumes to the male costumes. Yeah, the the briefs versions work much better than any of those others. I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> have either of y'all ever followed the X Men books? Or the X-Men in media? I've seen definitely, uh, I, I think, all of the X-Men movies. I've read the X-Men comics just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I always grew up a DC guy just because of the time. So the Marvel titles I'm always a little less familiar with. But are, are you all familiar with Rogue? Oh, yes. Uh, Rogue in the 90s, when she had the boots that came up to roughly the knees, and then she had leggings up from there. For me, I, I, and they've never really done it in the comics, but for me, for Wonder Woman, one of the things that's always irked me is that they kept making her bottom get smaller and smaller and smaller, and I don't know that that helped her audience in the long run. I think she would have been nice if she just had star-spangled leggings, not unlike how Rogue's leggings were, and then maybe slightly higher uh-huh. boots. And then that way she would, I think, look more practical while still being fabulous, you know? <laughs> So just just because we were talking about the costume stuff uh, and y'all were kept talking about the pants, I really wish that Wonder Woman had pants. I, I, I also think that in terms of the design, she's got too much flesh showing. And if you're going to have the blue and white in the costume design at all, you need to have more of it than just that little undergarment. I, I agree. Yes, really good point. And I appreciate you uh, mentioning Rogue. Yeah. yeah. I can visualize that. Unfortunately, as, as a child of the 90s, when I was first getting into DC, a lot of time was spent comparing Marvel and DC because I was moving from one to the other and so Rogue was always like the character act that had the easiest time getting across since she wore essentially the same costume in the cartoon so a lot of people would know her from that if nothing else but anyway I'm, I'm sidetracking us though I apologize yeah definitely one of the most recognizable characters from it and one of our favorites mm-hmm. yeah excellent excellent I actually like the WW chest plate that was part of sort of the Gene Cole and Roy Thomas run a little bit more than the Eagle but either one of those works for me I really liked it I think it was Terry Dodson who incorporated the Eagle into the WW so it doesn't look so much like a Whataburger logo especially here in Texas I can't not see Whataburger on one of his chest but but I like that uh, I think it was Dotson who kind of gave it a little bit of a peel forward or to the side and, and gave you more of that eagle quality to it he's fantastic in almost everything he does but I always worry some people just kind of make the eagle's head a little bit too prominent right between the breasts and it looks a little bit weird so you, you just have to make sure you play it right then there's a pinup by Annie Wu and again it's very harsh looking take on Wonder Woman. I like it. I especially like the determination in her eyes. I'm a fan of Annie Wu in general. She almost got me to pick up Black Canary, but seeing Wonder Woman with knee pads and hand stripes, and it's really the Wonder Woman from the film franchise. It's a reminder that this is really my Wonder Woman, but it's a nice piece of art. Next one's a little bit of a longer story by Marguerite Scott and Riley Rosmo. Very coarse art. I'm familiar with Rosmo from a book he drew for Image Comics called Bedlam, which was a very dark serial killer take on Gotham City and the Joker specifically. So not really the type of artist I would tend to associate with Wonder Woman. And the story is about a battle in the midst of a city with Giganta, where after the villainess is defeated, people who've been wronged by her reign of terror want to kill her while she's unconscious. And while I should be able to say, of course, Wonder Woman stops the angry mob, the current warrior interpretation of the character makes it seem like, well, maybe she would be okay with this. She actually does think about it for a bit. And see, this is a difficult story for me because I don't like it when heroes are put into impossible moral circumstances. In the story, it's implied that Giganta has killed people. She's definitely destroyed property. She's wrecked people's lives. And I'm not typically in favor of mob justice, not because I think it's a problem morally, but because usually when you get a group of people all together who are all in agreement that they want to kill something, there's the basic fact that most people are dumb and a lot of people are violent looking for socially approved ways to manifest their violence. So usually the problem with mob justice for me is just that they're typically going after the wrong person or just assuming that they have the right person without going through any sort of process to determine that. But in the case of Giganta stomping on people, I think it's a pretty safe assumption that yeah, she probably is the guilty party. And so there's a bit more of a Benito Mussolini situation. So I actually understand where they're coming from. Wonder Woman shuts them down. I'm not entirely on her side. And she doesn't offer very good rationale for shutting them down, especially given her current interpretation. So I just don't find it to be a particularly well thought out story. And I don't think it casts Wonder Woman in a good light. Plus, again, it's needlessly violent. There's one shot where Wonder Woman flies into Giganta's face and smashes into her mouth, sending a geyser of blood out. If you think about it, this is going to be buckets lashing on people up against walls. It's so unnecessary. And also the spokesperson for the mob that engages Wonder Woman is a cartoonishly heavyset woman. And it seems like they're making a contract 
contrast between the unattractiveness of the mob leader and Wonder Woman. So in a story with rough art and a sort of ugly mindset, there's this element of fat shaming that doesn't work for me either, contrasting this woman against this ideal muscular body type of Princess Diana. So eh, kind of icky. Wish this one had been left out. But not as much as Wonder Woman in Conversation, a six-page text piece written by Greg Rucka. I started reading this book when it first arrived in my hands, which was a number of weeks ago. And then reading this text piece drug on for weeks, I would go days without reading it. One of those painfully indulgent numbers where the writer is trying to write around his own story arcs in the main book, and he's trying to offer character pieces for Lois Lane, the person who's supposed to be interviewing Wonder Woman, and Diana herself. But the insights that are attributed to Diana are insipid. It's a lot of touchy-feely stuff, and given that I'm not reading Rucka's current run, I don't know a lot of what's being talked about, but what I do gather, six pages of navel-gazing, irritating, aggravating. I didn't want to read this. I don't feel like I was enriched in any way by having read it. At least there are some nice pictures to go with the so-called interview. From there, there's a two-pager by Liam Sharp, one of the artists on the current run of Wonder Woman who's been working with Greg Rucka. It's attractively drawn, but I don't get a lot out of the story. You'd have to drag me kicking and screaming into the uh, Rebirth books, but it does make me happy to see Artemis in uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws, just because I want the Wonder Woman's extended family to have exposure. I want to see all of those characters. I want to see Mala. I want to see Antiope. All of these people that I think had unique personalities in different sorts of runs, I think give her a, a good supporting cast, which I think is important. I kind of think of like Simonson's Thor run. That's a super well-regarded run and most of it takes place on Asgard and you got to know all of those characters and so it gave I think writers a little bit of room you could put him on Earth um, and have him interact with Jane Foster and all of those characters but he also had this other place so I would like to see all of that more fleshed out Um, does this mean you're not getting the Rebirth book? Uh, I'm going to get those in trades I don't buy the DC Comics universe anymore I buy a specific title for a specific purpose in this case I love both Nicholas Scott and Liam Sharp and I have my reservation about the Greg Rucker run, but it's one of those things where it's sort of like I, I did that uh, Marshmallow podcast earlier this week where a bunch of guys had read some of the worst Marshmallow stories ever. And I'm like, as much as I'm not a huge fan of the Ostrander run, it's like, why didn't you guys at least buy the Ostrander? It becomes the lesser of two evils after a while. And sometimes not even at all, just like a, a, a mild irritation. And so whatever problems I had with Rucka, it's still so much better than what Azarello did that I would like to support that. And I, I'm going to give them at least the trade piece. And from what I'm hearing, they just Yeah, the art is really, really good. The pace is a little slow, and part of that might be that he's sort of running the two concurrent storylines, but so far it just feels a lot more like Wonder Woman than I would say the last eight years have. Um, Your your interview with those guys, with Marshall Manter, it sort of reminds me, I can remember a lot of people would come up to me and would say, the best Supergirl story was Crisis Number 7 by far. And I would say, what other Supergirl stories have you read? And they'd say, none. And I'd go, all right, you have no argument here. Right, no kidding. I mean, (laughs) And I do think that it's called uh, Beyond the Silent Night, right? Yeah. That was one of the first ones I read. I do love that story, but it's not the end-all, be-all of Supergirl stories. You've got to read more. And especially, it's one thing, even if you were, like, saying up to that date, if you couldn't get into the Silver Age stuff, if you weren't into the Paul Coverberg series, but there's been so much great stuff since that story that how could you just stop there? No, I, I completely agree. It's when people say she was useless, she had no personality, she had no supporting cast, she was a barnacle that needed to get scraped and I'd go tell me what stories fit those categories and they'd be like well I never read them it's like okay I can't talk to you you know uh, that's fine Crisis 7 is, is the best one for you it is so frustrating though what kills me too is don't make definitive statements in ignorance if, if you have a contrarian opinion if you're coming at it from a place that I don't agree with but you at least have the background so that I know you've tried great but these guys they don't even try and they, I don't know just it's yeah I'm sorry I just a little a little tangent no 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 I, uh, I could feel I I think I even commented on your blog that I can completely understand why you were aggravated about that. Imagine if I came out and I said the best Ghost Rider story was that Marvel team-up story where he and Spider-Man fought a circus. And then people would say, what other Ghost Rider stories have you read? And I'd be like, none. You know, I have no right to say anything about Ghost Rider because I have no experience, right? You know, I can say the stories I've read, but I'm no expert. So I would never do a podcast, for example, about him. And that's why you don't come down from on high with twin tablets in your hands you know you say hey you know what the my, the, my favorite story of the few ghostwriters i've read is the one where he fights the orb you leave it at that yeah exactly <sighs> anyway Next is a three-pager by Fabio Moon, where Wonder Woman fights a Hydra, which attracts the attention of fans of different body types. 
genders, ethnicities, which seems to reflect the diversity of Wonder Woman's audience. But Wonder Woman doesn't actually relate to those people. She's mostly just beating the tar out of this mythological being. So it's all right. It's hearts in the right place, but it didn't do much for me. Next is a two-page spread by Marguerite Sauvage featuring the Wonder Woman 75 song written by Marguerite Bennett. This is the creative team, I believe, from the DC Bombshells Digital First comics where Wonder Woman is cast as more of a 40s Rosie the Riveter type. I haven't read those stories. It was cute. I've been resistant to the alternative takes, but I've also heard from a lot of good people whose opinions I respect that those are both uh, really good representations of the character. So I think I'm going to have to buckle and, and finally check those out in the future. Oh, let us know what you think. Then there's a two-page spread by Yannick Paquette, which basically acknowledges that the artist worked on the core Wonder Woman title for two years before he got famous and shows imagery from the run that he did with Eric Luke, including that Wonder Citadel thing that was created out of the liquid metal, what you might call it, invisible jet thing from that time period. Uh, there's the Titans of Myth. There's a supposed evil opposite of Wonder Woman devastation that didn't go anywhere. It's a nice pinup drawing. I was not a big fan of that particular run beyond the artwork, though. So it just made me wish that they had gotten a few more creators from the past so that there would have been a theme here where there would have been several spreads featuring these historical talents on the book. But as just one instance of reflecting on a past run of Wonder Woman, it sticks out in a weird way. But it's a nice looking piece of art. From there, we get the latest installment of The Legend of Wonder Woman, another digital first series which was collected into a nine-issue miniseries last year and earlier this year and is expected to come back for another run. This one's by Renee Delise. I got about four issues into it and decided I wanted to read it as a collection instead of installments. And it's cool seeing Wonder Woman in the World War II setting again, featuring some of her uh, older villains like the Red Panzer and Polo von Gunther, who is an important part of this story. It's interesting because von Gunther manages to place seeds of doubt in Wonder Woman's mission. And usually when that happens in a story, it seems hokey. Yeah, sure. That's really going to put our hero off. But in this instance, she makes Diana wonder if the fight is worthwhile. Diana will never be able to overcome the darkness in the human spirit. And therefore, her war is never ending. And so it makes Wonder Woman wonder if maybe she shouldn't go off and live her own life and stop worrying about running around and being a hero, committing herself to a task that she'll never be able to complete. However, Diana is given a fresh perspective on the matter by a true hero in the real world, Irina Sindler. And this is exactly one of my points in the lecture I was giving earlier. Here's an instance of Wonder Woman serving as a vehicle to introduce readers, like myself, to a true heroine, somebody who did phenomenal works. I highly urge you to Google her and find Find out more about her. The fictionalized Irina Sendler's words and actions not only helped to reorient Wonder Woman, but where I had been somewhat on the fence about this book, it warmed my heart, made me glad that I picked up this comic, made me proud of being a fan of Wonder Woman as a vehicle to make these sorts of associations and to expand the knowledge base. And it's the sort of story that deserves to be immortalized in this format. The Legend of Wonder Woman is coming back for another run. That should be cool. I, I haven't read it all. I was picking up in floppy and I was having trouble. There's like distribution issues with it. They had to reprint, I think, the second issue because they didn't make enough the first time around. And wow. so I finally gave up and I was going to read it in a collection, but I haven't gotten around to it yet because it's so heavy. It's like it reminds me a lot of Perez and like 80s Claremont where you read an issue and it's like, OK, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I need a month between these things. But they're, it's good. It's just like heavy, though. There's like a lot of captions, a lot of narration. It's a substantial read. I'm glad to hear that. It's so nice to get to talk with you one-on-one. -on -one. I had the idea that we had a lot of the same opinions, and it's really nice to have that reinforced. Not everything is the same, but it just makes for a really great conversation because I value your opinion, and I know why. It's one opinion, but I like having a multiplicity. You know, I like that there's a lot of different views, and I like hearing folks who articulate themselves well when they have a contrasting opinion, there's a tendency, you know, I get this a lot where I say something and people think that it's, I don't know, like authoritative. And it's like, no, it's, I'm just one dude saying stuff. I want to hear somebody else come back at me like a debate where if you don't agree, tell me why you feel the way that you feel. I, I just, I think that's more interesting because people get passionate. Ideally, they get passionate and they tell you in depth how they feel and why they feel the way they do. And I find that more interesting than, I don't know, synopsizing a story or something. I want to hear what the story meant to you and, and what what your views of it are. So yeah, so no, it's, it, I love hearing contrasting opinions, but I also, I'll admit, I, I take solace in hearing where we, 
sure we have the same opinions too. It's like, yeah, darn tootin', you're right. That's right. <laughs> I, I love that you guys promote, you know, heroines in comic books, and you guys have like this great positivity. You know, I, I'm I'm a fairly critical guy, as has been noted, and, but it's nice to have that counterbalance where you've got folks that are just happy to to be involved with the medium and to completely relish the art form. Uh, so yes, I absolutely wanted your positivity, and I just enjoy hearing your voices. Oh well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. That is the approach we take is to just talk about what's positive. That's just sort of our approach. But I must say that I love hearing a critical voice like yours as well. It's just always a joy to hear someone else we really like a lot. We're huge fans of Hayao Miyazaki's Ghibli movies. And I can remember several years ago reading an interview or with him, I suppose. uh, And he was talking about why he always uses females for his heroes in his movies. His answer, I don't remember verbatim what it was, but it was something to the effect that if you use a, a male boy or adult hero, everyone expects a lot of action. But as soon as you put a female in the role, action's still good, but you also know to expect some development and character. And I think that's probably why we gravitate that way a little bit, too. We love the action and adventure, but we like it when it slows down for some good plot development and character, and character development. development. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that you're allowed more storytelling options with, with a female protagonist because there's a certain baggage that comes with, uh, especially in heroic fiction, there's a certain baggage where there's expectations of who this guy's supposed to be and there are people who are going to automatically criticize if you don't follow that very specific heroic journey where with a female protagonist, I, I, I think, I mean, not to, not to diminish too much, but it, you're allowed to be more of a human being. You're allowed to have more a variety of, of options to you, I, I would say. Absolutely. Absolutely, Frank, you're right. And we've heard, you know, we are big friends of Trekker, and we've heard Ron Randall say the same thing, that when he was creating the idea for that series, his first thought was to have a male protagonist, and he developed all the world and everything, but then he quickly realized he needed a female protagonist because if he used a male, he was afraid that it would become a two-dimensional action-adventure story. But he knew if he put a female heroine in there, it would automatically elevate and challenge him to make a more three-dimensional character. And uh, I think that's true, too. And what's also funny is it, it would go against the common wisdom in the 80s to do that. You would, the expectation is if you want to have a big hit, you got to get that big, burly guy. But how many male-led books that are that sci-fi, bounty hunter kind of thing have just come and gone and been forgotten about while Trekker is still remembered? So I think in the, in the long run, he played it smart. Yeah, I think so, too. Next up is a pinup by Sebastian Fiumura and Nathan Fairborn. Once again, it's colored in shades of gray. It's Wonder Woman with a sword. She's in the new 52 costume. It's a very Zack Snyder-y feeling Wonder Woman. At this point, I'm getting very tired of that perspective on the character, especially within the context of this issue. And then that was followed up by an excerpt from the graphic novel Wonder Woman, The True Amazon by Jill Thompson, which is mostly about Diana chopping creatures to pieces and taking their treasure. I'm sorry, I was never a big fan of Jill Thompson's work on the core Wonder Woman book when she did it. I'm very much not a fan of her interpretation of the character within the previews that I've read of this graphic novel. This was not the first, but it featured some of the most off-putting imagery that I have seen related to the graphic novel. I won't be reading it. I won't be supporting it. It's not my Wonder Woman. I feel it taints the story that I had just read that was making me happy, and then I read this, and I'm like, ugh, you guys don't seem to understand this character at all. It's terrible. Given how little we've seen the lasso and the bracelets in the upcoming movie, any thoughts on that? General disappointment. (laughs) I think that's true of the comics, but I really think when that movie comes out, there's a lot of women who've never touched a comic book in their lives, but they watch that show, and whether it's first run or in reruns, and I think that they're going to make some noise if we don't see some bullets and bracelets. Batman versus Superman, not that I want to talk about that movie that much. She sort of clangs them together to make a, a shockwave, which I thought was kind of a cool image, but I really do hope, especially in World War One, there's so many ways that they could show that power, whether it be in trench warfare or biplane shooting shooting at her that they better have that in the movie and it better not just be a shield you, you got me picturing did you ever see the miniseries v the miniseries like um the from, aliens from, taking over the earth right yeah yeah there, there's this one moment where uh, an alien ship is coming down on a village and faye grant's character just has an automatic pistol and she knows that she can't do anything about it but she just stands her ground points up and is shooting this gun because it's the only thing that she can do she can't do anything else to help these people and she knows they're all doomed anyway and you've got me picturing 
picturing Wonder Woman and a biplane's coming down on her and unlike Faye Grant she's saving everybody by blocking all those bullets and it's like it's an impossible feat and you'd totally be impressed if they did that and I guarantee that scene is not going to be in the movie (laughs) too bad sounds like it'd be fantastic (laughs) moving on there's a story by Hope Larson and Ramon Box in which the New 52 African-American Etta Candy takes the New 52 Wonder Woman to what's essentially Ikea during a midst of a rampage by what is essentially the version of the Juggernaut featured in the movie X-Men The Last Stand. Based on that setup, I can understand why you would think the story is probably terrible, but it was actually cute. It was a nice, lighthearted break from a lot of the heavier stuff that's been throughout the issue. In a more evenly edited book, this might have been a bit of a meh. But in this particular book, it was some much-needed levity, so I was happy with the story. Then there's another pinup by Claire Rowe and Jordi Belair. Very unique perspective, sort of a Spider-Man thing, where Wonder Woman has her lasso of truth wrapped around one arm and is sort of throwing it at the reader. She's also making a bit of a duck face. I like it because she's wearing a cape that I haven't seen her in before that complements her outfit. I like that it's got a unique perspective. And then I turn the page to a pinup by Marchio Takera and Marcelo Mayolo. I'm a big fan of Takera's artwork. I've actually got one of his original pieces. He came to town one year. And the shot is the same Wonder Woman. So I guess she's taken to wearing a red cape with ornamental trim in the New 52. I haven't seen that, but I, it's right here in front of me. So I guess it's a thing now. And so she's flying over the Mascara. And then a little bit behind her is Donna Troy in her, I think it's the Nick Cardi version of the Wonder Girl outfit. I don't think it's the George Perez one, but I've always loved Donna best in the red outfit. Looks great. And then a little further in the background is Cassie Sandsmark in her sort of halter type outfit from, I think from Infinite Crisis until the New 52 bump. I don't love that outfit, but it's certainly hers and it's more familiar than some of the other suits she's had since. So I would expect that people who were fans of the character during her heyday around the time of the Jeff Johns, Mike McCone series would be happy with this. Overall, it's a great looking image. Dakara has a, a lovely take on Diana. This is one of the rare instances where I think that Kate adds to the image. Gorgeous coloring, nice sunny hues. It's bright, it's optimistic. It's the sort of thing that I expected to see more of in the special. So definitely a highlight of the book. Well, I wanted to talk about like some of my favorite villains because that's come up before and we talked about the cheetah on, or you talked about the cheetah on a previous episode. And I was trying to... F- find my top five favorite Wonder Woman villains. I ended up with two runners up. One of them was from the Jerry Conway run that I just talked about in the world's finest. There's a bad guy called Iron Claw, which sounds like a generic Nazi villain type of name. I think Captain America also had a villain named Iron Claw or something similar to that. Was he in purple? Yes. Okay, so go ahead. He has a Baron Zemo type of look, purple jumpsuit. It's sort of a cross between Baron Zemo and who Union Jack, I think, is the the other Marvel guy, the the, hero, the sort of UK guy. It's similar to that, but it's like a purple ninja style like jumpsuit, Nazi and symbol. But one of his arms is just like a metal cybernetic gauntlet with these claws. And it's just a cool look. The other character who didn't make the top five, but was close, I wanted to do an honorable mention, is Silver Swan. The Silver Swan that I think Roy Thomas and Gene Colan created. Yes. Uh, So you're talking about the pre-crisis version then. Like that one. Actually getting into the top five, my number five would be Ares, and it is the George Perez version of Ares that he created. And I don't care as much about Wonder Woman fighting the gods or those things like that. But damn, that is just a really, really cool look. We can complain about George Perez's costume designs at times. And the intricacy and the detail on that Ares costume is insane. But you see that thing and it's, holy hell, I want to see that in a movie. That is just a badass looking costume. So Ares would be number five. Number four, and it's one that you mentioned, but I have to put a sort of asterisk or a caveat with it, and it's Dr. Poison. And if you look at the original version from the Golden Age, this weird, it turns out it's a woman, but it was in disguise as like a man, and she's just wearing like these green operating scrubs and a mask. But during the recent Wednesday's comics release, when they had these comics released on newsprint with these 12 regular features published, Ben Caldwell did a Wonder Woman story through that that was okay. I think the art style didn't lend it 
itself to me. Maybe I just, I, I didn't think the art style was really worked for the story or something like that. It was really crowded and I don't think it was the best for that version of storytelling or the medium of that Wednesday comics. The story was okay, but he did a redesign of Dr. Poison, which was so cool and so basic. Basically the same thing, just a woman wearing an operator scrubs, but she has this gas mask and it's this World War One sort of gas mask that has, or, or like a fireman's gas mask. It's asymmetrical. You can see the extra tank built onto the left side of the mask for the rebreather apparatus. It's a really cool look. And what pissed me off was that they took that look and put it on the Scarecrow in the Batman Arkham Asylum video game. They redesigned Scarecrow in that. And I like that game and I like Scarecrow a lot, but they put him in this gas mask and they gave him this Freddy Krueger style glove with needles and syringes instead of the blades so that he could just stab you with his thing and inject Batman with this fear toxin. It was a cool, horrifying look. It's very like steampunk, but it has nothing to do with Scarecrow. When you think of the image of a Scarecrow in a field, you don't see it with a gas mask. So I think that look that started in Wednesday's comics for Dr. Poison was improved upon for Scarecrow in Arkham Asylum should go back to Dr. Poison. That should be the look for her and make Scarecrow put him in the burlap sack and the hat like he belongs. That look works for him. If I could get Dr. Poison looking like that, like she should, that would be great. And she'd be my number four. Number three, Dr. Psycho. I just think it's it's a classic, the sort of mad scientist with different mental powers. But the fact that he's this short, ugly man with hatred and deforming, I, I just like that idea. And then the top two, it's Wonder Woman. She's got to have female villains. Number two is Giganta. I just like the idea of the giant 50-foot woman. And then number one is Cheetah, especially the Priscilla Rich version, the classic version, and even more specifically, the version from that Justice story where she does almost like a Buffalo Bill type of thing where she skins these cheetahs and sews a suit out of their skin to take power in this bloodletting ritual. It gives it a type of magic that feels very crazy and creepy, but it also makes it elevates her and you can understand why she would be powerful enough to fight somebody like Wonder Woman. Cool, cool, cool. I don't want to do a top list of my own because it just changes the more I research. Sure. Yeah. And, and especially if I'm going to invest in a Wonder Woman podcast for a year, <laughs> I'm expecting to have a lot of my opinions changed. But as a, for instance, when you mentioned the Cheetah, I really liked Cheetah when I was reading the Prez run when it was actually coming out on the stands. And then I went through a long period where I was like, Cheetah sucks, man. She's weak. <laughs> There's all these other Catwomen running around, yeah. you know, whatever. And then, you know, I read some Golden Age stuff and I read Justice. And as much as I really didn't like Justice, as far as a, a book that was written down on a typewriter or a word processor or something that was intended to be read, not a good book. But as far as, as a pop cult artifact, as far as something that allowed DC Comics to finally reflect a lot of the continuity from Super Friends and, uh, and a lot of the pop culture ideas about who these characters were, that aspect I did appreciate. They really helped to sell me on Priscilla Rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, that concept of the character is so much stronger than Barbara Minerva, who they will not let go of, even though the character they've got running around clearly isn't the same character, and yet they stick with that name. And it's like, Cheetah's gone through a multiple identities. Multiple people have been Cheetah, and they've brought different things to the character. Let's get another name, and let's go and do another version of the character. But of the Cheetahs, I would have to say that I really like Priscilla Rich. I like her motivation. And I'm surprised how much she's similar to the way Green Goblin was portrayed in the first Spider-Man movie, to the point where it's like, I, I have no reason to believe that Sam Raimi would be familiar with that. But it's just so similar. And he probably was just swiping himself. The way I perceived it when I first saw the movie is he was stealing from Ash in Evil Dead 2. Mm. But it's the same dynamic, and it goes all the way back to the 40s. So I definitely, I really like Cheetah, and I, I personally, I really like, like you said, the crudely sewn Cheetah outfits, except that crude sewing was also reflected in the Batman Returns Catwoman and in the Batgirl version from Cassandra Cain. So uh, it's one of those where it's like, I love it, but there's a whole other cat person who's already been doing that. Dr. Psycho is definitely one of my favorites. He, w- he would at least be in my top five, probably closer to the top two or three, in part because he is basically the personification of MRAs on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I love the characters that fight Wonder Woman, and it's the same is true with Captain America. This character represents something, so I like it when the villains represent something too. With Cheetah, she plays into the cattiness and the inner 
personal problems between women, how women attack other women by instinct sometimes it seems like, or by conditioning. And then Dr. Psycho is a manifestation of misogyny in general, but he seems even more relevant today than he was in the 40s. I, so much uh, so. So I love Dr. Psycho. Dr. Poison, I've had very limited exposure to. The main one was actually, they brought her back during the Eric Luke run. Matthew Clark did a nice redesign on her as well, where he gave her the, um, I can't remember the name of it, but the medical icon where it's a staff with wings and a serpent wrapping around. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Over her the, eye, and she had the big grin with the big eyes to add the creep factor. But Dr. Psycho has a solid visual. There wasn't enough with her done in the stories I've read, but she's actually one of the earliest Wonder Woman villains, arguably her first supervillain. So that's yes. the character I need to do a deeper read on and get more familiar with. Ares is one, like you said, he does have an overly intricate up-res design. But one of the books I'm using as reference, what I use for my girlfriend, so I gave her, actually, it's a children's book. It's Wonder Woman, the origin story. It's It came out last year, and it features Ares. All they did was take out all the intricacy of the scale armor, and they simplified the helmet some. But ultimately, Ares, even in the Prez books, is basically solid blue, just like different colors and, and a contrast against blacks. Simplified, it looks fantastic. We also rewatched the Wonder Woman cartoon from 2009, and it was such an enormous misstep to redesign Ares to look like sort of white-haired Loki. He was so much less interesting, especially once he became Devil Man version of himself. Just do Ares, man. It just it bothered me. It, was, it wasn't necessary, and it got too far away from the idea of who Ares is, where he's a manifestation of war. He's a manifestation of man's conflict with man and the damage that does to the world. Obviously, anathema to Wonder Woman. I really do like the press design. It's one of the few press designs that you can simplify and translates very well. I could have worked great in animation. Mm-hmm. Then, let's see. Silver Swan, I only like the version you like. I never cared for the, any of the post-crisis versions. But that original origin story, which featured Dr. Psycho, is great. And again, it shows this person who, yeah, it feel bad for the ugly ducklings, and yeah, they've had a hard time, and there's reason for them to be nasty. But what I liked about that version is she was still at her core bad. You know, she's, <laughs> just, she's just an evil person just because you want to do the whole Frankenstein thing where, yes, he's a monster, but he also has a heart, and he's a human being. And it's like, I like that, no, she became beautiful on the outside, but she was still ugly on the inside. And right. I, I think there's a lot you can play with there. They made her way too sympathetic in the post-crisis area, and they made her way too dependent on the, the being created by a man and controlled by a man. It got kind of skeevy by my reckoning. I understand what they were going for, but it took away agency from the concept. And who else did you discuss? Giganta. Giganta Gigant is a nice visual. I just, I can't really hook into the character, though. I think it is just the visual. The most interesting I found the character wasn't in Wonder Woman. It was actually in the all-new Adam. Um, exactly. I like when she was kind of dating Ray, or Ryan Choi, going on that date and that, that crazy story. I thought that was just fun. And, and she's still also the person who fights mm-hmm. Apache Chief in my brain, so I can't quite sense right. that. I, I don't want to take away from Wonder Woman's rogues gallery, but Giganta also seems like she could be a utility villain in the DC universe, that she could be farmed around other characters if needed. I mean, I, I don't want to strip away any of rogues, the no, rogues gallery. I, I, I'd argue that she has been. I really don't have a problem with that because you're talking about how Dr. Poison in this one story influenced <laughs> a redesign on Scarecrow. The only reason why that would have happened is because that was just one strip among many in a book. There was a design to feature a variety of concepts because <laughs> nobody's actually reading Wonder Woman to borrow from it. So if it hadn't been there, nobody would have even seen it. So if Giganta's out there and she's having cool stories with the Ryan Choi Adam, then when she comes back to Wonder Woman, she maybe brings some of those people that liked her with her from these other books. As long as she's not completely taken away from her, I don't have a problem with that. Two that I would throw in just off the top of my head, and, and this has come up a few times with people where they've we've mentioned favorite Wonder Woman, nobody seems to mention Cersei, and I think one of the reasons for that is because she was so overused, especially when she became one of the vanguards of the bad girl movement in the 90s. And mm-hmm. so they just she was just always in anything related to Wonder Woman, and even in the Alan Heinberg uh, relaunch after uh, one year later, after Infinite Crisis, there's Cersei again. So I think people burned out on her, but I do think she's an interesting character. I do think she's a strong foil for Wonder Woman. And then an obscurity, go with the deep cut, especially because I'm a Master Lowe's fan, I actually really like the White Sorcerer, who is not well-known, but he was an instance of a man being two-faced and manipulative and actually having some attributes that sometimes they were assigned to women characters. I like seeing this male character embody that. He didn't really fight Wonder Woman straight up. He was always screwing with her from the sidelines and screwing with her through intermediaries and stuff. I don't know the character. Yeah, and no, like I said, unless you run the, the Master Lobe run, you wouldn't. Don't think he had any life outside of that. Um, thinking about maybe favorite villains. 
Oh, well, we can talk about favorite villains. Does, does one woman have any <laughs> villains that you can choose a favorite from? <laughs> but I'll just say uh, you're, you're right. Ruth and I, I think with Ruth and I, we're, and you've probably picked up on this, we're very selective. And you see that in how we talk usually very positive because I think both of us are the type, if we really like something, we grab onto it and we enjoy it. And if we don't like something, we don't spend time with it. So I think that's one of the reasons you see sometimes that our shows might come off a little more focused because we have a very limited number of things that we really will take time to talk about. They're the things that we love. So Wonder Woman's one of those things that we love. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of history and variety to Wonder Woman. You can talk for hours on what's changed from you know year to year and run to run. It honestly starts to all run together in my head because a lot of these things, I read them as they come out or I read them several years later because I missed them the first time and picked them up. And by the time you get to the end, it's like, I can't remember. Was that Gail Simone or was that J. Michael Straczynski? I get confused there. (laughs) Large library, a lot to pull from. Exactly. So I remember key things, but sometimes oh, I don't remember the specifics as well as a lot of other people do. And we know what we love and we sort of stick with that. And uh, sometimes we don't uh, get as much nuance because the parts that we don't like, we just sort of leave alone. So we don't have that backstory to talk about it. Did y'all watch Saturday Night Live in the early 80s? I was a Saturday Night Live viewer, I guess, probably for about the first 10 seasons or so, sort of like the late 70s into the mid 80s that I was watching it. So, yeah, I was definitely watching it in the early 80s. Do you remember this bit that Billy Crystal and I can't remember who the other fellow was uh, had at that time period where there were security guards and they basically just have these long conversations about how don't you hate it when you cut your fingernail and then you put salt into the wound and then you drive a nail through it. Oh, I hate that. That's the worst. <laughs> so many comic book fans are those two guys. Right. And I, I think that's so much healthier to just go, you know what? This is what I like. I'm going to focus on this and I'm going to talk about this and the stuff that I don't like, I'm just not going to torture myself with. So I, I think that you guys actually have it up on a large segment of the fan community. Oh. But instead, we'll just listen to great shows like you so you can gripe about all those things that we're not reading. <laughs> well, but you enjoy the griping, so it's still yes. healthy. Yep. You make it entertaining. <laughs> That's Thank right. You. We do enjoy a good gripe. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, did y'all, y'all are bringing up the villains. If y'all want to talk about that, that'd be fine. Um, yeah. So Ruth, you, you wanted to talk about villains. Who's your favorite Wonder Woman villain? Cheetah. <laughs> Cheetah. That would be a Cheetah. She's, like she's making a little <laughs> claw. claw. Yeah. She's making a little claw thing. She was having trouble remembering the word. <laughs> Well, well, I, I've got the, the Lego heroes like Martian Manhunter and Wonder Woman, but they haven't gotten a cheetah. But they put out a mini fig that looks an awful lot like the second incarnation of, of Cheetah from the 70s. Uh-huh. And I, I've, I make a point of keeping her around. She just looks so fun, you know, that the costume, the whole yes. vibe. Yes, I like the design. I would like to see that figure. I'll have to look for that. Yeah, yeah. that's Ruth is really big. Ruth is an artist, too. Uh, she doesn't do it professionally, but she's really good at art. So visuals are very important to Ruth. Mm-hmm. And I know that's why she likes Cheetah yeah. because she loves the visuals Great of Cheetah. design and she can get into some very ferocious fights. Now, which incarnation though? Oh. I mean, do you like the one that's more like a weird being or the one with the long flowing brown hair or the one that looks more like it's a costume? Oh, there's aspects of all of them that I like a lot. Oh. I think you like it most though when she's more of a real cheetah. Real you know? cheetah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she looks good in Amikami version as well, in case you check that out. Ruth's <laughs> <laughs> a big fan of that. She got some issues of that signed, too, by one of the I artists. Did. So, yeah, she's a huge fan of that run. Well, that's cool. Isn't, isn't uh, like someone like Jimmy Palmiotti writing that? I don't I don't remember. Do you I, remember, Ruth? You read all of it. I didn't. I read all of it. I missed the question. About so. one of the writers. Oh, I can't think of writers' names. Yeah. No worries. I probably have seen the cheetah from Amikami, but I can't conjure the image. I've seen like statues and figures of the Wonder Woman enough so that I can picture plus cosplay and people who cosplay as her that's pretty ambitious and they've done a surprisingly good job with that some of those are gorgeous yeah i agree yeah that's a really nice costume and we've seen it just a couple of times in cosplay Mm -hmm. but yeah it's really nice uh as as for villains i I always like cheetah too so but ruth took that one but 
I always liked Cersei. I always thought Cersei made a good villain. I think Ares is a bit too easy to choose because Ares turns up so often. But interesting for me, one of my favorite villains is rarely ever used. But I guess it's because of the George Perez run, because one of the early issues of the George Perez run, he used Decay as the villain. And I just loved that uh, storyline with Decay. So I've always liked her as a villain, too. It's funny. For some reason, in the various conversations, the villains do seem to come up. And everybody seems to forget Cersei. And it's weird because, if anything, my main issue with Cersei is she was so overused, especially in the 90s when when she became kind of a hot character for a little while there. And I I think she is a very strong villainess. And I think that now that she's had some time to rest, she would be great coming back out again. It still seems, though, like nobody seems to remember her anymore. It's like they've completely forgotten what a major villain she was throughout the Perez run and uh, Messner Lobes and Phil Jimenez. She got a lot of play in the 90s, especially. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point to bring up. And that might be why I usually think of Cersei and Decay at the same time. Maybe it's because... I like aspects of both of them, but maybe Cersei was used a little bit too much and Decay a little bit too little. I might have enjoyed a bit more of a balance, but that's yeah, I'm trying nice. To remember, I would like to see Cersei come back. I mean, I remember Decay from the, the initial story arc, and I want to say, didn't John Byrne bring her back briefly? I think it was like a nanite version of Decay or something in the early hundreds. I know you have to be right, because I remember when I saw her show back up, and I was thought my thought was, oh, I remember her. <laughs> so, But then I've forgotten that storyline. Yeah, well, the burn stuff I don't think was strong, so (laughs) that's a whole other thing. It's not on my favorites list. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, that's cool. I I enjoy talking about the villains. You know, people are very dismissive of Wonder Woman's villains, I think because a lot of times they only end up appearing in a story arc and then going away, but I think she's got a pretty decent bench, but she always gets slagged on, unfortunately. I think I I shouldn't go into this too much, though, because I had a long conversation with Ryan about this. Ryan's going to do an episode of Power of Fishnets. It's me and him talking about story from the New Frontier special that came out a number of years ago and then using that as a springboard to talk about the two characters and we talk in pretty heavy detail about why Wonder Woman's villains aren't as resonant within the community so that sounds really exciting I look forward to hearing that that'll be fun to hear it was it was a fun conversation I think we both enjoyed ourselves so Uh, I don't know if Ryan's gonna enjoy trying to edit that thing into something presentable but (laughs) we had fun (laughs) talking the final story is by Gail Simone and Colleen Duran titled Big Things One Day Come. And to me, this is the most Wonder Woman story in the book. It features Superman fighting Titano. But as it turns out, there's a lot of villains out there whose menace is defined by their ability to project kryptonite at Superman. So Superman finally figured out, well, how about this? I'll deal with these guys for as long as I have to, but I'll make a point of calling in Wonder Woman to pick up the slack, tag me out, since she doesn't have a weakness to kryptonite and is nearly as powerful as I am. So that's what happens here. But it's a bit more complicated than that, because once Diana takes over the role of battling Titano, there's complications related to his usage. And then a new superheroine makes a scene, the sensational Star Blossom, a young African-American girl who has a DIY aesthetic that recalls the early Cassie Sandsmark. And by engaging with Titano, she's a bit over her head. But unlike what you see with a lot of issues of new heroes popping up and running into veterans who are dismissive of them, Wonder Woman treats this new heroine quite well. They have a meaningful conversation. It's adorable and ends on a very happy note. And as someone who had high hopes for Gail Simone writing Wonder Woman back when she took over the book a number of years ago and somewhat being let down, I feel like Simone just has a much better handling of Wonder Woman in this story than she had in any of the previous ones I've read with her. And the arts by Colleen Duran, an artist I've always liked, and somebody who has a diverse style. She can look a lot of different ways depending on the type of story she's trying to tell. But I gotta be honest, as I was reading the story, I didn't recognize her. The inks were just so lush. There was a strong Kevin McGuire quality to the artwork. It is flipping phenomenal. It's some of the best work I've ever seen of Duran. Really fluid motion, good action sequences, great character faces, great character acting. These ladies just hit it out of the park. It's an excellent Wonder Woman story, an exceptional way to end the title. But there actually is one more pinup by Phil Jimenez, who also had a run on Wonder Woman that ran a few years. He's actually produced a fair amount of really strong Wonder Woman artwork. Here he doesn't have as much room to work with as he normally does, so it feels a bit cramped. It's basically three headshots of Wonder Woman from various points in her career. One that's more Silver Age feeling, the next one a bit more Bronze Age, and then the final one a bit more angular with the modern tiara. And then the more classical Wonder Woman is 
flying in the background, whirling her lasso. There's a shot of a very George Perez Hippolyta off to the one side. And then you also get to see Wonder Woman as both Wonder Tot and Wonder Girl from the Silver Age. So as I said, all in all, it was a good package. It was worth the price of admission. Between the Gail Simone, Colleen Duran story and the Renee DeLee story, I wholeheartedly recommend the book. The rest of it is just bonus material. You may feel better about it than I did. It wasn't bad. It just wasn't the flavor of Wonder Woman I was hoping for, what I embraced about the character. Those two stories and some really nice pinups absolutely go out and buy this thing. I was really excited to get the invitation from you to have the conversation because Wonder Woman's a favorite and you know, haven't had the opportunity for such a fun conversation about a lot of different aspects of Wonder Woman. So it made me think about her over the years and all of the different versions. So nice to spend some time focused on this. Wonder Woman means, well, she's a gift to me. She's been a gift because I was given a job to give her voice and I've been doing it for about 16 years. And to be able to be associated with a character that is so beloved, not just in this country, but throughout the world, that is a present. It was bestowed on me. And so I feel an obligation to do her justice, pardon the pun, and to represent her well. We received social media love from the 108th Sage, Allie Bats, Ange, Between the Pages, Blue Girl, Cindy Womack, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Comics Couplets, Comics in the Golden Age, Connect Verified, David Golding, DCU Movie Page, Dr. G Nerdologist, Ed Moore and Ed Moore Jr., at Indie Comics Fan, at Marvel Bronze Age, at Teal Productions and at Miss Katonic, Eli, Inigo Montoya, Firestorm Fan, Hicks, Jeffrey Brown, Joseph Crawford, Justice's First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, Luke Dobb, Mark Sweeney, Matches Balone, Min. Nethead, Nora Crest, Not Guano Man, Pietro Blacksmoff, Randy Caldwell, Richard Field, Ronnie Casole, Ryan Daly, The Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Style Icon, Cinedalia Scarecrow, Trekker Talk Podcast, The Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warlord Worlds Podcast, The 101 Warrior for Peace Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, and The Xenozoic Xenophiles Podcast. Randy Caldwell wrote in on the Wonder Woman theme from Batman vs. Superman that the solo sound that's used for Wonder Woman's theme in the song Is She With You is not a guitar. Minor saying is while the Batman vs. Superman soundtrack was composed by Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL, that that specific segment was composed by Tina Guo on an electric cello. My understanding is also that Tina Guo will be composing the soundtrack for the Wonder Woman motion picture, so it should have a very distinct sound. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Randy also offered up a video of Tina Guo playing the Wonder Woman theme, which you can find on YouTube. Joseph Crawford was happy to hear that there was a new episode of Diana Prince from Rolls by. This is actually the first episode in over a month. I had intended to have this episode that you're hearing now come out much sooner. Things didn't play out that way. I've also been working on a variety of new podcasts. Unfortunately, virtually all of Rolled Spine Podcast took a hit because of that. But I think that we'll have a better time with our schedules in the coming year. And we'll also have a bunch of cool new shows I hope you guys will enjoy. But we're going to continue to have Diana Prince Wonder Woman and it should be back on its bi-weekly schedule from this point onward. For episode six, the Wonder Woman 2016 trailers, which happened to be released the morning after Donald Trump's election as president, Ufta at Fryhall Yeah wrote, Holy shh, listen to Wonder Woman podcast. You went dark, Frank. Lol. Ryan Daly wrote, Appreciate Frank's words at the beginning of this episode. Everything after that was fine. Of episode seven, the second coming of Robert Kaniger, Mark Sweeney of the I'm the Gun podcast wrote, Bob, Bob, Bob. I love so much of Kaniger's work. While some of it, thanks for the link to my show, by the way. Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog wrote, Such fun. Great episode. I wish I could talk that fast. He'd also asked previously, am I in it? Of the All-Star 75th anniversary episode. You'd think you'd have noticed. He doesn't talk that fast. And the English accent is a bit of a dead giveaway. Slang was Scott wrote of an episode. Looking forward to it. But I'm so behind right now on my correspondence. I'm not sure which episode he's looking forward to. Hopefully all of them. Best spine surgeon in India wrote, Very nicely written blog. Totes legit, y'all. Andrew was a little bit more positive. He wrote, Like you, I'm very optimistic about this movie. The shot of Wilson bracelets made me very, very happy. And Dr. Poison is a great villain for World War I. One. I really hope my optimism isn't squelched. Of the previous episode, the ironically iconic Wonder Woman, where I took a blogger to task for trying to take down the Wonder Woman TV show and Wonder Woman generally, Paul Hicks wrote, Respect, Frank. You could easily have torn this unpopular opinion to shreds, but you used it as a platform to convey some very well-articulated observations about everything 
from the character, relevant eras, and human nature. The fixation on what the Wonder Woman TV show didn't tackle is just plain weird. You may as well criticize the Brady Bunch for not giving an accurate view of divorce and puberty. By the end of the episode, I was standing on my desk and shouting, Captain my captain for you. And wrote, For me, I think the trickiest thing about the current sensibilities is that they often want to label things from the past without acknowledging the social mores of the time. One of the most insane comic arguments I have heard was the anger at Howard Chaykin's The Shadow for being male chauvinist. The Shadow was a guy from the 30s. Of course he would have a crusty view on things. You can use that to point out flaws. But having a man from the 30s have the PC view of a guy in the then 80s seems foolish. So complaining of the Wonder Woman show from the 70s about some of its silliness while not recognizing how progressive it was then is a tricky proposition. Anyways, great discussion. I don't recall much of the show, so hearing the background stuff was enlightening. Siskoid offered, love the passion. The takedown of the targeted arguments was definitely warranted and as usual, researched and articulate. Angela of the Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace podcast also had things to say about that episode and she did so on episode 9 of her own show. I'm really glad she did too because I want to list her among the people who appeared on this episode, but unfortunately we actually used everything that we recorded between the Wonder Woman Secret Origins episode, her show, and Matt's Radio Free Themyscira. So this way I get to work her in in a more substantial role. Blue Girl on Twitter tweeted a link to me and Diablo Frank. It was a link to a website whose name I will not mention because, well, let's put it this way. The second word in the title is Flicks. And the first word is not used in polite society outside of a kennel. Anyway, the article is very critical on Wonder Woman, especially the TV version, trying to argue that the TV show was bad for women because all the stuff behind the scenes was done by men, and the women characters who aren't Wonder Woman, this writer says, were idiots, and Wonder Woman is too perfect, no one can live up to her, and her costume is designed to just appeal to men. (sighs) Yeah. Look, Diablo Frank devoted a whole episode of his Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast to this, where he does a really good job of going through point by point and arguing you know, for Wonder Woman. I don't agree with everything he says there, but definitely go check that out, because he did a really good job. The only thing I want to add to that is... Okay, so let's say it's all true. So what? This show inspired a generation of women. I know there have been women, and even little girls, who will go to their last session of chemotherapy dressed as Wonder Woman. That's how inspirational she is. And I can guarantee you, unless they're comic book fans, they know most about her from the Linda Carter series. I mean, if nothing else, this TV show saved the character. I mean, at the time in the comics, she had been depowered and just completely changed. I doubt anyone today would have even heard of Wonder Woman if it weren't for the Linda Carter show. So, it wasn't perfect? Yeah. No, it wasn't. Does that really matter, though, in the grand scheme of things? It did a really great thing back in the day. And even though it doesn't fit all of our modern ideals, that's worth celebrating. Oh, hey, hearing from Angela also reminded me to remind you guys to make sure to let DC Comics know how much you're looking forward to the follow-up to The Legend of Wonder Woman by Renee DeLise and Ray Dillon. I know DC Comics would really love to hear from you about how excited you are about those creators' work and how much you want to put your dollars into their company by supporting this miniseries that is half-produced from what I understand. And also, don't forget to send letters thanking the United Nations for making Wonder Woman an ambassador for them, no matter how brief her reign was. It reminds me about how the only Miss America I can name is Vanessa L. Williams, and about how the only bad publicity is no publicity. Everybody reported on Wonder Woman becoming an ambassador. Some people reported on her having it stripped away from her in protest. It did shine a light on the cause intended, which was that women are too often slighted within the United Nations organization. And I think that Wonder Woman would have been proud to have contributed to hopefully advancing corrections in that matter. So nothing to shed a tear about there. Finally, I had some feedback from Darren Sutherland on the Wonder Woman Secret Origins All-Star episode. It was sent to me via private message, so I didn't think to reference it earlier. But he'd actually apologized to me for not sending it as an email and gave full blessing to read it on air. So let me knock that out right quick. Frank, the Wonder Woman episode is fabulous. Ruth and I listened to half of it together this morning. Then I listened to the rest of it while driving to work. I'm sure Ruth probably did the same. No hyperbole, this was the best podcast I've listened to that I can remember right now. And that's saying a lot given the recent wrap-up of the excellent Secret Origins from Ryan Daly. And it's not just because Ruth and I were on it. You chose great guests who had differing opinions. Your questions were concise and focused and generated interesting conversations. Your editing was super and blended the quotes together into a cohesive conversation. Superb job. Thanks for inviting us to be part of the show. We'll be promoting it and hope you get some great download numbers. 
numbers. By the way, Ruth was giddy over being the first guest on the episode. You really made her day. Well, I hope you all folks enjoyed the second round. When I cook a chicken, I try to find a use for the beak and the feet. Let nothing go to waste. And hey, I think the episode was pretty fun. So I hope you folks enjoyed it as well. Wonder Woman is the copyright of DC Comics Entertainment. This is a non-profit fan-produced podcast. No infringement of any copyrights are intended. And where copyrighted material appears, it is believed protected under fair use. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a comment on the Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman blog, the Rolled Spine podcast blog. Write to me at email of Diablo at yahoo.com featuring two underscores. Or just hit me up on Twitter at Commander Blanks or at Rolled Spine. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.